the alphas can be dismissed. If, if you want to turn, uh, or please turn, to Isaiah chapter 9. We're, we're going to be spending uh, our Advent season in Isaiah chapter 9. I already preached this morning this very message. Uh, it'll be tweaked a little bit for our congregation at East Randolph. Uh, if you see the logo, we have both of our logos. Uh, and as our two churches became autonomous a few years ago, uh, one of the things that we really wanted to do is to continue our partnership together in the gospel. Uh, an easy way that we thought we could do that is to do an Advent series together. And so I preached up there this morning and I'll preach here next week. Femi will be preaching at both locations. And it gives uh, our pastors uh, an opportunity for rest during this busy season and the holidays. But it also allows you to hear from somebody other than me. Uh, it allows them to hear from somebody other than their pastors. Uh, and we get to continue to be partnered together uh, for the sake of ministry here in the area that we live and serve. So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we'll pick it up and starting in verse 2. Um, the scripture reading over the next few weeks will be the same as this will be our text will be in. So Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. Would you stand for the reading of the word of God if you are able. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Father, we thank you that you have done this. God, we thank you that you have given us this text to lead and guide us this morning. Would you speak to us as your people and encourage us because of what your son has done for us? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So before Kristen and I moved to Vermont, we, we enjoyed watching reality TV shows that would depict people surviving off of the land. We would like the shows in Alaska where they would be you know, hours away from a grocery store and so they would never grow. And so they would raise their own food. They would kill their own animals. They would survive in harsh environments. And then we moved to Vermont. <laughs> We love it here. We uh, think those shows prepared our hearts and our minds to actually live an environment. And I'm, I'm joking. We, we really do love being here. But the world we live in is hard, right? 
Imagine being surrounded in a city, maybe a, a city with walls like a castle, and your enemies are surrounding you. You've seen the movie or you've read the book of Lord of the Rings, right? The Battle of Helm's Deep is a great example where inside this city, there's very few to fight the massive hordes outside wanting to destroy everything living inside the city. There's a lack of hope. And I doubt you're currently at war unless you're like our house where we fight over like whether we can play Christmas music before Thanksgiving is over or not. Or maybe you're at war with that big buck that's been wandering around your property and you just cannot find him. But maybe you are in a battle. Maybe you're in a direct battle. Maybe you're in an indirect battle. Maybe the battle is with a neighbor or with a political party. Maybe the battle is with your boss. Or maybe someone who lives in your own home. Maybe your battle is your own sin. I just can't break it. I keep going back to it. Maybe your battle is confusion. I just don't understand the things that I'm reading in the scripture. I cannot apply or live according to how God calls me to live. I want to, but I just can't. I don't know what to do. So what ails you? What plagues you? What makes you feel like the pressure is pressing in upon you? So for Isaiah, Israel was under pressure. There's an army surrounding the people of Israel. The Assyrian army was at their door, like the Battle of Helm's Deep. Survival of such a great attack would be very difficult. But Isaiah wrote to Israel to give them a glimmer of hope, a royal glimmer of hope, a hope, friends, that will never fail. Because Isaiah knows that there is an even greater need for hope, an even greater need for peace than that conquering army outside the walls. And to understand what's going on here, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter one, where God created the world and he created it good. We saw that, right, in our catechism. And it doesn't take long to get to Genesis chapter three because in Genesis chapter one, God said, you can eat of anything you want except for one tree. You cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan shows up in chapter three and they misrepresent God's word. They misunderstand God's word and they disobey God's word and they eat of this tree. And since God is holy and righteous and just and good, he must punish sin. And since that day, the seed of Adam and Eve, you and I, suffer the consequences of sin. Sin that's part of our nature, but also sin because that's what we do. We sin because we are sinful and we sin because that is part of our nature. But in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God gave Eve a promise. He gave Eve a promise of a royal hope, a seed that would come from her that would crush the head of Satan. 
someone that would come in her line. And it wasn't her first son, Cain. He murdered their second son. It wasn't Noah who would come to give God's people rest. It wasn't Abraham who was to be a father of many nations to bless all peoples. It wasn't the prophet Moses, although he helped deliver God's people from Egypt. It wasn't even King David, a man after God's own heart. Who could deliver God's people from their sin? God promised a better royal hope. Born of a woman in the line of all those folks that I mentioned, God's very own son. And I'll give you the answer why we need a Prince of Peace. The answer for the Prince of Peace is Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace himself. And so today we will focus on our need for the Prince of Peace and what he provides for us. Isaiah alluded to this hope back in chapter 4, in verse 2. He says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. A couple of chapters later, God gave them another promise. You're probably familiar with this in Isaiah verse, or chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God will do the work, restoring the relationship with his people, creating peace. And friends, it's our sin that gives us our greatest reason for needing a prince of peace. But remember, in Isaiah, that army is still outside those walls. We can't disregard that. And so with that background, we'll see this morning our need for the Prince of Peace because he provides four things. If you're following along, it's in the bulletin. He provides light, light, not lightness, light instead of darkness. He provides joy instead of sorrow. He provides relief instead of burden and he provides peace instead of chaos. Let's look at the first one, light instead of darkness. Let me read verse two again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so walking and dwelling in darkness, God's people are shown light and the light shines on them. There's two parts to this light. Light on God and light on us. And this provides a hope of redemption when there's a feeling of gloom and anguish and sadness. We're Old Testament prophets. They are really good at declaring truth to God's people, to remind them of God's faithfulness, to turn from your sin and follow what God calls us to in the scripture. And much of prophecy starts with that. Oftentimes we look at those predictions and those promises and those things to come, but God wants us to say, hey, where are you at right now? Pay attention to what is going on right now. But they also do tend to come with these promises of future hope. And so we can't forget, again, that Isaiah's readers want deliverance right now. And so consider looking at a mountain range, right? If you look out this window, you see a, a hill. It's not really a mountain, but you know that there's taller hills and there's taller mountains behind it, even like that way towards Killington. 
And future promises or higher mountains can be overshadowed by our inability to see past what's right in front of us, right? But that doesn't mean they're not there. But it also means we shouldn't disregard what's right in front of us. Where God sometimes veils future promises because he's concerned about present circumstances. And so that light shining on things to illuminate things for us helps us first to see who God is because God is holy. We see in scripture God is righteous. He is good and sin hinders our ability to see that. We've all done it, right? Where we've gotten up in the middle of the night and we're too lazy and we walk around really trying not to hit the corner of the bed, but somehow that bed just moves a little bit and you hit your pinky toe on that and you just fall to the ground. I did that a few weeks ago and I woke up in the middle of, or I woke Kristen up in the middle of the night. I think I shouted. She's like, what happened? She doesn't know what's going on. But if the lights were on, the bed would have stayed right where it was, right? And you wouldn't have suffered such massive injury. But light, it brings understanding of reality. It brings understanding of truth. We know, oh, I see that post. I'm not going to go right there. In the New Testament, it describes our utter desperate need and this blindness. Paul says in Ephesians 4.18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Relief from oppression is nice, but there's a greater war that's waging, raging in us. We aren't just blind towards God, we're, we're blind to see who we are. We tend to think, oh, they're not that bad of problems, or I can fix my problems. But light helps us to see who we are as well, who we really are as utterly helpless. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life, for in your light do we see light. And God could easily leave his people in darkness. But when we see God as holy, when we see that we're broken, when we realize that we aren't the solution to our problems, when we see that we can't save ourselves, we see something far greater. We see our need for a Prince of Peace. And God promises that Prince of Peace that he will provide light to see God's holiness and our sinfulness and our response to that is to receive that Prince of Peace by his grace. And so by his grace, he provides light for darkness. Second, he provides joy for sorrow. Look at verse three. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Where gloom is transformed to hope. The Prince of Peace transforms our sorrow to joy. And sorrow and sadness are 
natural responses to an upcoming defeat, right? Consider Israel in these walls of this city. They're just hopeless in despair. We've all seen that sports team, right? We, yesterday, Chris and I were watching an, an athlete in this college football game. He got hurt. He had to be carted off the field. He could not hold back the tears of sadness that he could no longer participate with this team. His career was over. That's his last game, probably, as a college athlete. It's hard when we realize we just can't do it anymore. When we have no further options. And once we realize we have an utter need for salvation, it leads to sorrow. When we realize we can't fix ourselves, we give up. We say, I just can't do it anymore. We're sensing a bit of defeat. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so when we see our sin, when God shows us who he is, when he shows us who we are, sorrow is natural, that we should grieve our sin. And that grieving, as Paul says, should lead us to repentance, to die to our sin, to not give ourselves to that sin anymore by grace-driven effort. And we rest in the Prince of Peace. And he leads us to joy. When the deliverance arrives, God defeats our enemies. We are relieved from that which inflicts us. Psalm 30, verse 11, then becomes an encouragement. He says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So as a response and a result of God's revelation of himself and revelation of who we are to see that we need a Messiah, we need someone to pay the penalty for our sin, joy then sweeps over his people. And joy becomes abundant. Where we have salvation by grace alone, not because we deserve it, but because God is gracious to give it, it leads us to joyful worship. And friends, that's what we were created to do, to worship God. And since salvation is only achieved by God, naturally, we should rejoice. And so the Prince of Peace provides light for darkness, joy for sorrow, and third, relief of our burdens. Verse four. The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You might be familiar with the story of Midian and the scripture in the book of Judges. There's this guy named Gideon who rises up as a judge and he gets 300 folks to go fight this Midian army of 130,000. That's a lot larger than 300. God delivers the people of Israel against overwhelming odds. He's really good at doing that. He provides manna in the wilderness for God's people. He provided through Jesus bread and fish to feed 5,000 or 3,000 people, or 4,000 rather. 
He released, as we just saw recently, his apostles from prison. He parted the Red Sea. He delivered Israel from their bondage in Egypt by taking the life of the Egyptian firstborn son so that God's people could be released from their bondage of slavery. And all those burden reliefs point to a far greater relief of the burdens that we have, the burdens of sin. This is slavery language where we have a bondage or a lack of freedom or heavy burdens to bear or laborious work to do. And Paul says in Galatians 4, 7, due to the finished work of Christ on our behalf, the Prince of Peace dying for God's people in lieu of them passing, he then rose from the dead so that we have eternal life. And he says now, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Where God relieves us from our yokes of slavery for those who believe the gospel, removing the burdens off of our shoulders. Remember, the Assyrians are outside those walls waiting to conquer God's people. And when they would conquer people, literally they would put yokes on the shoulders of those whom he con they conquered and they would march them to show their victory. So what seemed impossible to Israel, God immediately says, ha, I'm going to relieve that burden. You won't have to worry about that burden. And God assures them, this is an easy victory for the Prince of Peace. Would you turn to Psalm 81? I'm going to look at Psalm 81, verses 6 to 7. And there's a reason why I want to turn there. I want you to look at these words. Psalm 81, just going to read verses 6 and 7. It says, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And what do you see right there on the right-hand column? This word, Selah. It's a liturgical word. It was an, a, a word that would help God's people to worship as they are singing or praying these psalms. And that word, scholars believe, just means a breath or a sigh of relief or an opportunity to just pause Whereas the Prince of Peace does this, exchanging darkness for light, sorrow for joy, burden for relief, almost putting in the text right there when we read it, after we read this. <sighs> Take a breath. Take a sigh of relief. Whereas we have light for darkness, soy, joy, not soy, for sorrow, relief for burdens. And fourth, he provides peace in lieu of chaos. We'll look at verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Where defeat is almost there for God's people, but relief is also right around the corner. As the battle wages on, it will stop. 
Every boot will cease trampling. Every garment of war will be rolled up in defeat. It will be consumed by a fire. This is the climax, church, of our utter desperate need for a prince of peace. It's not just a small battle victory so the enemy can go home and recoup and replan and come back and attack. Burned up means the enemy of God will be utterly, completely, finally, exhaustively defeated. We know God is fighting a bigger battle. 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And so we have great light, great joy, great relief, and it's followed with great peace when God destroys his enemies. And don't get me wrong. Light and joy and relief, they're all great things that we would all really like to enjoy. Even the feet of our enemies would be a welcome sight, I'm sure. But in Genesis 3, enmity was one result and consequence of sin. God said there would be enmity between the man and Eve and Satan. But there's also enmity between God and humanity. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden, then they sent them east to Eden. You're probably familiar with what happened. God put two angels with flaming swords to keep them out. That does not sound like, hey, you're welcome back in anytime you want. That's not language of peace. But remember that passage from Isaiah 7:14 that I read. Recall the prophecy, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. God will once again dwell and live with his people, restored by the work of the Prince of Peace. Christians, we know that God dwells in his people as the Spirit lives in us. The personal hostility has become personal restoration as peace. And as a result of sin, Romans 5 calls us enemies of God. Colossians 1 mentions that we are alienated from God. But Psalm 29, 11 says, May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And friends, peace comes from God himself. We need a prince of peace. We need a prince that doesn't just bring light in the world or joy in this life, burden and relief for a moment or peace for a season. We need lasting peace. And that's what we celebrate during Advent. A need for a prince of peace, a prince that came. That's what Advent means, just the Latin term for coming and arrival. I won't steal any thunder from next week when Femi comes and opens the word, but we have an utter desperate need for a Prince of Peace. But imagine reading the next words, expecting this conquering king, this one who would shine his light, bringing joy, alleviating burdens, creating peace, and conquering his enemies. And imagine reading the next verse, for to us a child is born. What? I want the conquering king. 
I want a man who's grown with an army to defeat my enemies. I want victory now. And these words that Isaiah wrote, God's people had to wait hundreds of years to see come to fruition. But we know that Prince of Peace, who was expected, he came. If you were to turn to Matthew's gospel, it talks about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the seed that he is part of. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, the son of David, the king, the son of Abraham, who would bless the nations. God isn't disregarding their physical suffering. He's providing for it. Imagine seeing someone homeless, maybe down at Walmart or something, needing a meal for Thanksgiving last week as you were maybe getting some groceries for your own Thanksgiving meal. But you just say to them, I see your need for food, but I have a gospel to share with you because this is your greatest need. He'd still be hungry. It's not bad to do, but the guy would still have a need. At the same time, we don't just respond to the physical needs. Hey, here's a gift card, or here's a turkey, or here's some food, without sharing with him what his true desperate need is of sharing the gospel. Friends, we need both. We need to meet the physical needs of people, and we need to meet the spiritual needs of people. And this is what Isaiah is doing to the Israelites who are sitting in this city surrounded by a great army. One commentator said, to make God's promises primarily political is to overlook the profound insight of the Bible and of the chief reason for the abundance, the absence rather, of peace among human beings is the absence of peace between God and human beings in our sin. God defeats his physical enemies he also defeats his spiritual enemies. And when Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he defeated sin for those who believe the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the victorious resurrection from the dead. And the very fact that Isaiah's people are being attacked by their enemies is a consequence of their sin. God said, if you disregard and disobey my covenant, I will send foreign nations to attack you to then take you off into exile. And they are still not seeing it. And God is using Isaiah to say, wake up. You have a great and utter desperate need. And we know, if you're familiar with the story of the scripture, that their relief, they wouldn't be conquered right after this, but they would be conquered by the Babylonians and they would be taken off into exile as a consequence of their sin. They would bring this on themselves, which is what many of us do, right, when we give ourselves into sin. And so when things ail us internally or externally, Friends, it's a great opportunity to consider the consequences of sin and to in turn consider our response of repentance. These are great opportunities, church, to consider our need for a prince of peace. 
As we said, our sinful nature can be traced all the way back to our forefathers, Adam and his wife Eve. And when we believe in Jesus for salvation, Romans 5 says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone. And so consider what the New Testament says about Jesus, how he fulfills these promises that Isaiah gives. Because Jesus goes first. He gives us an example to follow. He proves himself this prince of peace. He exchanged darkness for light. First in John 1, verse 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He provides true light in exchange for our darkness. He also exchanged sorrow for joy. Matthew 8 talks about Jesus, that he had no place to lay his head, no place to rest. His life was hard. It was filled with sorrow to the extent where he is in the garden of Gethsemane praying that the Lord would deliver him from the eventual event on the cross, and he is sweating drops of blood. Jesus was acquainted with grief so that you and I might have joy. He also exchanged burden for relief. In Matthew 11, verse 28 and 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, he bore our sins on the cross so that we wouldn't need to suffer the consequences of our sins ourselves. He provides true rest in exchange for our burdens. And he also exchanged chaos for peace. Ephesians 2, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one as he has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, we cannot celebrate Christmas and Advent without considering Easter and Good Friday. They always go together because he came so that he might die for you and for me. He came to live a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He was put in a tomb and after three days he rose victoriously so that for you and I who believe the gospel, we might live according to how God created everything back in the garden, good and without sin. And Isaiah will continue for a number of chapters. It's a long book. Maybe you would read most of it during this Advent season. But eventually, Isaiah will talk about Good Friday and Easter and talk about the suffering servant to reconcile God's people to himself. And as we saw in that passage from Ephesians, We've been reconciled to God, but we've also been reconciled with each other. And I think there's just four things that I would apply and help us to, as we go about our daily lives, as those who have received and believed the God, we can live differently. 
we can be light and joy and relief and peace for others in the church, but also those outside the church. Having received life, we can do as Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Having received joy, we can do as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 15, that we can rejoice with those who rejoice. We can also weep with those who weep. Having received relief, we can do as Paul says in Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And having received peace, we can do as the pastor who wrote to the Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 14, says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, for without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, we need a Prince of Peace. And we have the Prince of Peace. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. And for the Christian who's believed and received him, which leads to a lot of joy. For the non-Christian, he's available to believe. And I would encourage you to do that, even this morning. And this message is a promise of God for deliverance for both Christian and non-Christian. For the non-Christian, believe in Him for deliverance from your sin and the consequences and the burdens of it. For the Christian, believe in Him for deliverance of the temporary things that ail you right now. We all can go to Him. We all can rest in Him. We all can be reconciled with Him and with each other. He provides, friends, for our greatest needs. He Himself takes the consequence of our sin. And so he can easily provide for all the menial needs that we have even in this life now. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that with these words of Isaiah 2,500 years ago now or so, that they came to fruition. That you did send your son. That he did live a perfect life. That he did die a substitutionary death for us. That he did rise victoriously from the grave. To prove who he was and to seal our salvation. But God, as we still live in a world that is plagued by sin, and even though we are delivered from sin's power and sin's penalty, its presence is always around us. It's still in us. And God, as we reflect during this month or so of Advent, of how your Son came and humble lowly circumstances. The next time he comes will be victorious completely and finally as a conquering king that I think Isaiah's people wanted and we even want today. So God, as we are living in a world in between the two advents of your son, would you help us to live 
accordingly, that we would believe you. God, that when you say that you will save your people from their sins by believing the gospel, that, that we would believe that and follow you in light of that. Having been reconciled to you, then would you help us to be reconciled with each other and that we would be agents of reconciliation to a lost and dying world around us who just like us is in desperate, utter need for the Prince of Peace. And so God, we want to close our time praising you and worshiping you because